Thank you, Steve. Good morning. We'll try that again. Good morning. There you are. It's getting warmer by the minute. Fantastic. It's a privilege and an honor uh, to be with you this morning. Um, I'm going to talk a bit more about what I'm going to talk about in the moment, but I'd like you to talk about something you're going to talk about to the person next to you for 30 seconds right now. I'd like you to turn to that person next to you, in front of you, behind you, if you find that person more attractive. Um, I'd like you to turn to them and tell them, what would you do if you were made king of the world? What is the first thing you would do if you were made king or queen of the world? Go. Okay. Another few seconds to decide what you'll do if you're king or queen of the world. Okay, well, we will come back to that uh, in a minute. Before I talk uh, about the passage that we're going to be sharing this morning, um, I feel I should say a huge thank you to Oxford Community Church. Um, It's been my privilege to be working uh, with you guys now for over a year, and um, uh, I said the first time I've actually been to the worship bit. In fact, someone said when I came in this morning, have you been here before? And I've been here rather a lot, but never on a Sunday and never to join you in worship. And it's been an absolute privilege to work with you. As Steve said, I work for Chapel Street, which is a charity that exists to work with churches to create new schools and health centres in communities that need them. And uh, Oxford Community Church contacted us sort of 18 months ago or something, maybe slightly longer now, saying, look, we've always had this vision of doing a school. We hear that you help churches to create uh, schools that the government can fund for local communities. Uh, And we started talking about what we could do together. And it's been brilliant to gradually see this dream for Tyndale Community School come closer and closer uh, to reality. Um, I also, as Steve mentioned, um, I'm part of a a Salvation Army community church called the Rains Park Community Church near Wimbledon in southwest London. You can probably erase any vision of what you think a Salvation Army church is like. Our church is pretty similar to this. And uh, we've been really blessed by you guys. Steve brought some of your team to talk to us uh, about missional communities because we've been thinking along similar lines. And then, as Steve said, Steve and Bev uh, came Uh, with the kids to our church retreat this year, which was fantastic also. And so I feel I've already learnt a great deal from you. In fact, I've been taking notes this morning because our church never turns up on time. But obviously, if you serve coffee and donuts until 10.20, in this marvellous mix of generosity and manipulation, um, (laughs) miracles might happen. So a big thank you to you as Oxford Community Church. In truth, and I I say this utterly seriously, I think the thing I was trying to sum up why I feel so grateful to you, I I feel grateful for Oxford Community Church because in the last 18 months, you've helped me to believe more in the church. Uh, I'm a theologian, and unlike some theologians, I do not have a problem believing in God. But sometimes I do have a problem believing in the church. And working with you guys has given me a huge belief and a huge sense of confidence that the local church really is the hope of the world. It is really the presence of God in the community. And what's more, it's a privilege to be here speaking on John. I would travel pretty much any distance to speak on two books of the Bible, uh, one on John. I'd speak anywhere on John to any group of people, regardless of whether they stay awake or not. Um, I offer you that now. 
And also this morning, I feel that my work has really been done in the way that Jeremy led worship and in the readings that Catherine and Graham brought, you will find out that I was kind of thinking, well, actually, maybe I don't need to speak because it's kind of all been said already. But hopefully I can pull some of these things together. We're going to be talking about John chapter 13, and I'm going to go at a pace, which is my tendency anyway. But this is a huge passage with lots in it, and so we're going to have to go at some pace uh, to get through it. It is like most of John's gospel, as you've been discovering in your series, a very dense uh, text. Um, one of the world's greatest uh, scholars on John's gospel is a gentleman called Professor Richard Borkham, who worked most of his life at St. Andrews University and is now retired in Cambridge. And I was working on John last year, and I had the privilege of taking Richard for lunch And one of the things I commented to him was just how dense it is. John's gospel, the way it is planned, literally down to the syllable. John is very keen on a technique that uses a theory called gamma trea. So if we go to Revelation, all the numbers and the 666 business, it's a number theory. That's what gamma trea is. And it will take John's gospel, and you can analyze John's gospel by the syllable and see how syllables in different sections, and the 133rd syllable of this section, and the 133rd syllable of that section interlink and cross and speak to one another. And so it's an incredibly kind of dense gospel. There's a lot going on. And what's more, it has a kind of filmic quality. It has a very theological quality. It's the most kind of interpretive of the gospels in trying to help us understand who Jesus is in theological terms. But it's also very filmic. It gives us very visual pictures of who this Jesus is. And this morning we're going to explore John 13 in three scenes. The first looks at sacrifice, one lamb. The second, at intimacy, three disciples. And the third, at servanthood, all God's people. And we will read most of the chapter, so if you've got your Bible and you want to read it through, have it open on John chapter 13, and I will read most of the text as we speak. We won't read all of it at the beginning, because otherwise it will be time to wrap up. So, scene one, sacrifice, one lamb. John 13, chapter 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Some context. Um... Following the other Gospels, we see here, we sometimes think about first century Jews as, as quite kind of pious and removed from the world, as quite kind of sectarian. In actual fact, the first century Jews were very, very good at reappropriating different cultural elements of the world, whether they be Greek or Roman, taking different traditions and making them part of their own. And John paints for us a picture of essentially a Greco Roman banquet. One of those ones you see in films where everyone's reclining, lying around, eating. And this was something that the Jews had kind of taken to their own. This was a nice way to spend an evening, particularly at a special time of year, to recline, to eat together. And then there would usually be some entertainment. And sometimes, maybe not entertainment, maybe it would be some kind of political or kind of theological speech. Now, this is exactly what's going on in, in this passage And what happens for Jesus is rather than doing some entertainment, rather than doing some magic tricks at the end, or or even just doing some some teaching, we have a final discourse. Very common in kind of ancient biographies for a hero to give a final discourse. One big last speech before they 
pass on into another world. And it's common in the Bible. So Moses does it. Uh, you see it in Deuteronomy. Joshua has a final discourse in Joshua. David in 1 Kings. Jesus does it in Luke. And obviously here in John. Paul does it in Acts. And Peter does it in 2 Peter. This final discourse to his disciples. And there are key words right from the beginning. In John, there are very key words that run right through the, the, the gospel and they point to one another. And every time they come up, they have sort of various meanings and various levels of interpretation. Verse 1a, it was just before Passover. This is a signpost. In John's gospel, if there is a story about a celebration, particularly one of the feasts of Israel, there is an implicit claim that Jesus is fulfilling that feast. It was just before Passover. We know now by now, this is John chapter 13, we've been reading for 13 chapters. We know by now that Jesus is suggesting that he is the fulfillment of the Passover. And in actual fact, this scene differs in John's gospel quite considerably from the synoptics. So for the synoptics, this Passover meal, this last supper, this final discourse, is the kind of Eucharist celebration. It's where the Jesus kind of gives the bread and the wine and my body and my blood. But actually, John doesn't do that. One scholar, Craddock, says Jesus doesn't need to celebrate Passover. He is the Passover. And he doesn't need to do the Eucharistic bit. He's done that already. He does that in in chapter 6. He he does that, I am the bread of life. He talks about this idea of, of him being given to the world seven chapters before this. And what's more, Jesus' soul was one of the mysteries in the other in the other narratives of the Passover. Because one of the things that seems missing from the other Gospels is the presence of a lamb. Quite essential to the Passover was the eating of a lamb. That was part of the whole deal. But there doesn't seem to be a lamb involved in the other Gospels. And so, hence that said, some some scholars have led them to say, actually, is it a Passover meal? But for John, it's obvious where the lamb is. Right at the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1, when John the Baptist first announces Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb. John uh, 13, verse 1b, Jesus says, John says, Jesus knew the hour had come to leave this world and go to the Father. The hour is important in John's Gospel. It's anticipated three times it's in chapter two when Mary says, go, this, this is, go on, go on, go on, turn the water into wine. Jesus basically says, My, this is not the hour. It's anticipated in chapter seven. It's anticipated again in chapter eight. The hour comes four different times in John's gospel. It happens at the triumphal entry in chapter 12. This is the hour. It happens now in 13. It happens in 17 verse one when Jesus is praying before his arrest. And we have this moment, the hour has come. The lamb is going to be given, sacrificed. The body is going to be broken for all of us. The Eucharist is going to take place. And then in verse 1c, this lovely line, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That, That word end means to the end of time, And it also means to the utmost. He loved them to the end. He loved them as much as he could love them. He loved them with as much as he had. He loved them with the utmost that he had. Jesus loves us to the end. And yet in verse 2 we discover that Judas is ready to betray 
Jesus. Jesus knows that Judas is about to betray him, and John makes a point, but he loved them to the end. We'll come back to that. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Just think about that first line. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knows that he is now king of the world. I don't know what you chose for the first thing you would do, but Jesus stands up and he takes a cloth and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. A really important point in John's gospel is this. Jesus is not God on his gap year. He's not what God did for 33 years to find out what it was like to live with the little people, to get his hands dirty doing some community service and seeing what it's like to be poor and hungry, what it's like to suffer persecution. For John, this picture of Jesus is who God is through all time. And that's why for John, his view of Jesus, from John the Baptist first saying, here is Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, through to Jesus, now the lamb in the Passover celebration, through to Jesus in the book of Revelation, at the climax of history and revelation, is framed by this idea of a lamb. I was really uh, lovely that I've not sung that song this morning that Jeremy led the holy, holy, holy song, but the hymn one I had, the second one I, I hadn't. And it's a beautiful picture of some of the images and the imagery of Revelation 4 and 5. And Revelation 4 and 5, this climax of kind of John's view of God, is like, it is very filmic. It's like a long shot. It's like one of those films which is kind of slowly zooming in. You start a long way out. And you zoom ever closer, ever closer, and you're not quite sure what you're going to find when you finally focus on the the final frame. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it very quick. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked up, and there before me was a door standing open heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled in stone. Surrounding the throne, oh sorry, my iPad's gone mad. Sorry, that's not in the text. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne were seven lamps blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. We start to zoom in closer. In the centre, around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was flying like an eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
we move closer. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. We zoom in closer, chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And now we close in on the final throne, on the throne itself. And John says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. All that build-up. Who could sit on a throne like that, surrounded with creatures and angels like that? Who could be on a throne like that? A lamb that looked like it had just come from the abattoir. And John says, this is our God. This is the one who is king of the world. For John, the throne of God is the cross. Jesus doesn't need a a throne made out of gold and jewels and gems and diamonds. He's a carpenter's son. A couple of bits of wood and a few nails, he can make his throne. And for John, we see this is who God is, the servant king who comes into the world. And at the moment that God gives him all the power in heaven and earth, shows who he is by washing the feet of his disciples. I've read a lot of commentaries on John's gospel. And one that's very powerful is a commentary by a man called Jean Vanier, who started the Lash community, Christian community, working with disabled people all around the world. And he writes a particularly brilliant commentary, and it's particularly poignant. I'm going to use a couple of brief moments from his commentary today. But closing this scene, he says this. Jesus has read the signs. His hour has come. He has announced his message of love and is now going to offer himself up in humility, in weakness, and in silence, even to death. He will no longer defend himself. He will go to the very end of love. He will love totally and unconditionally, giving life, giving his life. He will reveal in a new way who he is and who God is. Scene two, intimacy, three disciples. Um, I don't know what you would do if you were made king of the world. Uh, One of the things I was thinking about today, I think I would do is, I think I would have better rules about how we greet people. Um, I work with lots of churches, and I must admit, the process of initially greeting people is one of the most precarious things I do, because in different church traditions, there are different ways of greeting people. Have you noticed this? I grew up in a church where, to be honest, the only really holy way of greeting people was a steady handshake. Strong, firm, not too weak, and a kind of God bless you, you know? Very simple. 
And then when I was 18, I went to the gap year and discovered these things called charismatic Christians and discovered they had all kinds of different greetings. And many of them seemed keen on hugging, but I discovered there were different hugs. (laughs) So there's what I call the A-frame hug, which is where you bend from the waist and you gently do the God bless you pat on the back. There is no danger of any pelvic touching. (laughs) It's a very holy hug. And then some people aren't happy with that. They, more, they really like the kind of body slam bear hug where they throw themselves into you. They kind of crush you until you fall on the ground dead and they can raise you after <laughs> being asphyxiated. And then there are people, and I find this quite scandalous, who even do kissing. And I'm never quite sure when you come against a kissing Christian how many you do. You know, is it one cheek, two cheeks, or is it one for the Father, one for the Son, and one for the Holy Spirit? And when I worked for the Salvation Army, I used to work for the Salvation Army before I worked for Chapel Street, and um, we had a degree of charismatic renewal, and it really messed things up, because you weren't quite sure how to greet people. It used to be clear you did a handshake, but you were, if, you were, you know, if this was someone who's a bit more charismatic, you might go for a hug. You might even go for a kiss. And I remember one day being at this renewal conference and I was walking along the pavement and I saw this elderly female colonel coming towards me, which is a senior rank in the Salvation Army, who I knew, and so it was obvious that we should greet one another. So I walked towards her and I thought, well, it's a colonel, it's going to be a handshake. That's all that's going to happen. You're not getting anything more than a handshake here. So I go, just get ready to put my hand in. And as I put my hand in, she starts to put my hand in. But then she flicks the hand out. And I think, the cunning little mink, she's going for a hug. She's going for a hug. Well, I think it's a colonel, so it's going to be an A-frame hug. There will be no pelvic touching with the colonel. So she's getting into position, and I'm getting into position. And then suddenly, the colonel thrusts her pelvis. She's going for the full body slam bear hug. So I'm getting ready, and I'm kind of getting into position... And then, just as she does that, the saucy fox starts to lift her cheek. She's going for a kiss. And I'm not sure what kiss it's going to be. So now I'm going for the hug, adjusting. She's quite a lot smaller than me. And then I trip. And no word of a lie, I find myself nibbling on her ear. (laughs) Thinking that I've created a whole new charismatic greeting. And you see, the problem is this is meant to be an intimate moment because I'm, I'm not sure what greeting to give. It's actually quite stressful. <laughs> and stressful times, in all seriousness, often damage our, and limit our capacity for intimacy. Jesus is going through a stressful time. And for most of us, that would kill our ability to be truly intimate. Um, God has blessed me with many Steves in my life. I hope he's blessed you with many Steves in your life. But I have many good friends called Steve. I woke up this morning to hear two of my close friends, both called Steve, on Radio 4 this morning um, to listen to a a sort of very brief debate between Steve Chalk, a friend of mine who I'm a great deal. I would not be doing what I do and helping churches to create schools if it wasn't for Steve Chalk. And another friend of mine, Steve Holmes, who was actually my doctoral uh, supervisor and, and someone I've worked with a lot since, Um, talking about the discussion around human sexuality and same-sex relationships in the church on the Sunday program on uh, Radio 4 this morning. And um, I must admit, I was was really impressed, because I think a time when stress comes in, actually people find it harder to express intimacy and relationship. And I think they 
did a good job this morning expressing very different views, but actually maintaining closeness and relationship. And I texted them yesterday, both of them. I said, I want to text two of my favourite Steves and say, please, I, I pray that there will be grace and peace for you and through you tomorrow. And I think that probably did happen. And there's that challenge in life. When things get stressful, our capacity for intimacy reduces. And this is one of the greatest moments of Jesus' life and the greatest, most stressful moments. And yet he maintains this incredible sense of intimacy. He knows what's going to happen. There's a contrast with the synoptics here. The synoptics, it feels at this point that Jesus is kind of finding out as things goes along. John is very clear, and one of the words that crops up most in this passage is the word know or knew, that Jesus knows what's going to happen. Before Judas betrays him, he knows what's going to happen. He knows the hour had come. He knows the Father has put all things under him. Verse 6, he comes to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not know what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew he was going to be. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, amen, amen, in in the Aramaic. I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let me fly through this section. What we see here is a Jesus who knows everything. And yet he maintains, in fact, some would say he increases the level of intimacy between his disciples. There are three disciples that are focused in, in this little, little scene. The first is Peter, the activist. Why put one foot in your mouth if you can put two? And sure enough, he doesn't disappoint. Peter's protesting that Jesus shouldn't watch his feet. Jesus replies, you do not know what I am doing, but later you would understand. And, and the protest is understandable. By the second century, it was pretty much possible under Jewish law for a rabbi to ask a disciple to do absolutely anything and they had absolutely no choice but to obey. One thing that a rabbi couldn't ask their disciple to do was wash their feet. So in a culture where a rabbi could instruct his disciples to do anything, pretty much, but wouldn't go so far as to say, wash my feet, Jesus the rabbi now says, I'm going to wash your feet. And for Peter, who needs the, he needs to know that Jesus is the king, the power broker, that he is in control, that he is in command. This image of Jesus suddenly dropping down and doing something that even the lowest servant would struggle to do is really difficult for Peter to grab hold of. It's unthinkable for Jesus to wash his feet. And, and we see the kind of return at the end that Jesus, he knows Peter. He knows he's going to find this difficult. And in verse 36 to 38, Jesus talks about Peter's end. He knows what's going to happen to Peter. 
And verse 38, amen, amen, very truly. When you see very truly, it's a double amen in the original text. Amen, amen, I tell you before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He knows Peter. He knows he's going to disown him. He knows he's going to deny him, and yet he's still there washing his feet. The second disciple is the, the disciple that Jesus loves, the author of this text, the one we call John. And he's in the seat of honour. The way the text is, he's obviously basically lying at Jesus' bosom. And uh, Jesus chooses to declare to him that he knows who's going to betray him. And uh, there's intimacy here with, with, with John. John, you know, in chapter 19, remains at the cross with Mary. In chapter 20, he accompanies Mary to the tomb with Peter. In chapter 21, he's in the boat with Peter. This is a disciple who Jesus loves a great deal and, and shares this incredible bond with, this incredible intimacy. And he's the one who he declares to that Jesus is safe enough to say, look, I know now. I can't imagine how painful this is going to be that one of my closest friends in all the world is going to betray me. And it's John that he chooses to turn to and say, very truly, I, I tell you of one who is going to betray me. Verse 22, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And leaning back, Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. One of the themes of John's gospel is light, as you will have discovered. He goes out, it is night. The light has gone. It's dark. Verse 11, he knew Judas was going to betray him. 21, amen, amen, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And then in verse 26, this amazing verse, Jesus answered, Lamanikai, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. This, this process of dipping the bread is the one part of this passage which is like the Eucharist. It comes back, harks back to Jesus talking about the bread of life in chapter 6. Um, this idea of dipping it and giving it to Simon. This act of incredible intimacy. He knows that this guy is going to betray him, and so what does he do? He takes the symbol of his own very broken body, and he gives it to Judas. He gives himself. Again, John wants us to know that Jesus is the one who's in control of events, but yet he remains this incredible intimacy. He reserved the most intimate act in the whole of this passage for the one who is about to betray him. I think there's a fear that most of us have that if anyone really, really knew us, that they would have to betray us, that they would have to deny us, that they wouldn't be able to carry on knowing us. And yet Jesus really knows Judas, and he really knows what he's about to do, and he reserves an act of incredible intimacy as almost the final piece of communication between them. It's a beautiful film called The Lives of Others, one of my favourite films. It's about a Stasi, a member of the Ger uh, East German secret police, a Stasi officer 
who basically lives in the loft of an apartment block, spying on a playwright and his girlfriend, who is the country's leading actress at the time. Because the Stasi are convinced that they are involved in revolutionary activities, which they're not. And one of the horrible side plots is that this woman who is an actress is being blackmailed into having sex with a government minister. And uh, she has no choice, because if she does not do it, he's threatened all kinds of horrendous things against her boyfriend. And uh, one night, going home from being in this loft, listening to every conversation, knowing these people in the most incredibly intimate way, the Stasi officer goes into a bar for a drink, and it just so happens that this actress, on the way back from this sordid kind of sexual thing with this government minister, finds herself going into the same bar. And at first he doesn't know what to do, should he go, because his cover's about to be blown. But instead, actually, he chooses to sit with the actress. And he says, can I say something? I know who you are. And I think you're amazing. And the actress says, look, you don't know me. You, you might have seen me on the stage, and you might have seen my picture in a magazine, but you really don't know me. And he looks at her and says, no, I really know you. I know who you are. And I think you're amazing. And the God that we worship looks at us today and says, I really know who you are. I know you better than you know yourself. And I think you're amazing. Jean Vanier sums up this part of the passage in utter beauty. Talking about Jesus, he says this. He needed his mother to feed him, love him, and be in communion with him. He needed the Samaritan woman and asked her for water. And we will discover that he needs each one of us. He wants to dwell in each one of us as a friend. He is knocking at the door of our hearts, begging to enter and to become our friend. The history of humanity has changed since God has knelt humbly at our feet, begging our love. We can accept or refuse. Jesus is chained to our freedom. Listen to those lines again. The God who loves you and knows you says, history of humanity has changed since God knelt humbly at our feet begging our love. We can accept or refuse. Jesus is chained to our freedom. Scene three, servanthood, all of God's people. Um, it's lovely having uh, travelling with my eight-year-old. Toby particularly is one of these people that has the inability to stay quiet and, and keep a question that you really wish he wouldn't have asked um, uh, to himself. Um, uh, in fact, he got, came here this morning and he went up to some of your lovely stewards and said, is this a cafe or something? <laughs> and then in the worship he asked me, is this the Salvation Army, Daddy? And so he asked these questions. And one question he asked me, which was, was nice, a few, few, few... I don't know why they do it. He came up to me the other day and said... If you go to prison, will we be put in a care home? <laughs> Which one begs the question, what does he think I actually do for a living? 
And, and secondly, why does he think that if I was in a prison, his mum wouldn't look after him? But we probably won't go further on that road. But there's this idea of nice to be needed. And, and Jesus expresses in this passage this incredible need for his disciples. Not necessarily the way we think, not to pr- not protect, not to defend him, not to stand up and fight for him, but actually to serve with him. And what we often see in John's Gospel is this incredible kind of example of Jesus, and then he kind of passes on the responsibility for his disciples to do likewise. Verse 31, when he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. But a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. The Johannine community, so the community of Christian believers that kind of gathered first around this gospel, that shared this gospel on a weekly basis um, as, as a way of expressing their newfound faith in Jesus regularly used to wash one another's feet. Because they saw in this passage that Jesus goes beyond just saying, I'm doing this remarkable thing by washing your feet. And they hear this idea that Jesus says, you should actually do likewise. You should do the same. You should pass it on. Love other people as I have loved you. And in some ways, the the command to love one another is, is not new. But the idea of love one another as I have loved you, knowing what Jesus is about to do, is an outrageously big challenge to make to the Christian community. And yet the Johannine community lived trying to imitate Jesus in this. Jesus is asking his disciples, not just to believe in him, but to share him with others. Now they must imitate In verse 36 to verse 38, we have that discussion with Peter, where Jesus is basically saying, you will imitate me. You will imitate me in the way you die. There will be a day when someone comes and calls on you and dresses you and prepares you for your end in the way that that's about to happen to me, but that's not ready now. That's for the future. And the point is, many of these guys ended up imitating Christ in their death. Not all of the people at that meal die as martyrs. But all of them led incredible lives in imitating Christ in different ways and they laid down a challenge for the church. Um, It's a lovely story about St. Lawrence who was a church leader in Rome around 250, 258 I think he was born, AD. And at that time the church was beginning to assume real power and the Romans felt that the church had real wealth. And so as the leader of the church in Rome, the Roman authorities came to St. Lawrence and demanded that he come to the assembly of Rome and present to them the riches of the church. And so a few days later, St. Lawrence turned, upside, turned, up, turned out up, outside the Roman assembly with all of the poor, with all the blind, and all of the lame of Rome. And when the doors opened, he said, Behold, These are the riches of the church. 
Jesus makes us rich. He doesn't just ask us to sacrifice like he sacrifices. He, he asks us to become like him. And in doing that, we become wealthier than anything we can imagine. The reason churches like yourselves create new schools is not just out of some community service. It's not just kind of some kind of church-style gap year. It's because in reaching and serving the community, we become richer. We become more like Christ. Our lives become enlivened and enriched in ways that we couldn't imagine otherwise if we weren't prepared to make that sacrifice. The reason some of you will serve the homeless today and give them lunch and other vulnerable people is because not because you're just doing them a favour and not just because Jesus says it's a nice thing to do, but because by doing it, we discover how rich we are in the gospel of good news and we find something out about who Jesus is in trying to be Jesus to other people. And the challenge for all of us is it's not simply to know how amazing God is, not simply just to be in intimate relationship with him, but actually to lay down our lives and become the servants of all, as Jesus demonstrates in this passage. This is the part of the passage I find most difficult to preach on, hence it's the very short part of my sermon. Because it's just so challenging. And I remember a few years ago, I did a mission in Canada, I led Canada and I left this mission filled with young adults, you know, who were kind of charged up to, to witness and evangelize to anything that lived, moved, or breathed for seven days. And one of the things we were doing, we, we, we were working in this homeless hostel. And they said, look, we've got this foot clinic one night, Wednesday night. And uh, we have these lovely Christians coming from the suburbs, and they've got foot spas and all the gear. And they basically just wash and massage the feet of the homeless and they cut their nails and give them new socks and new shoes. And I had to find two volunteers from my team to go and help out. And so I said, look, we need two volunteers. And Jeremy put his hands up early. Uh, but he, just, he, was, he was actually a Canadian sailor and he'd just done tear gas trials, so he wasn't too worried. But no one else wanted to volunteer. So you start saying, we really do need someone. And you do what you do at that point. You kind of look at your assistant leaders. We really need someone. And eventually one of the assistant leaders, Julie, put her hands up and she spent the night. It was underground. There was no light, no air. It was about 30 degrees. It was in the heat of the summer. And the the smell was quite pungent. And she spent the evening serving these homeless people. And we arrived the next morning for team meeting. We'd start with prayer and worship and a bit of teaching. And when we arrived, we realized that Julie was leading the worship and she just put all the chairs in a circle. That's a bit strange. And then she came in with a a bowl and, and a towel. And she said, look, I need to tell you something. Last night when Russ said he needed someone to, to do the washing of the feet, I, I, I thought, God, you can ask me to do anything in life, but I'm not doing that. I hate feet. I don't like my own feet, let alone anybody else's. I don't like looking at feet. I don't like smelling feet. And I cannot think about touching feet. So God, I can't do that. And she said, as soon as I said that, I realized actually that was the one thing God probably asked me to do. And so I put my hand up and I spent the evening there and it was amazing. And this morning, rather than sharing scripture or sharing a song or doing some prayers, I would just like it if you would allow me to wash every single one of your feet. The challenge of John is not just to acknowledge who God is in Jesus not just to enjoy how intimate he is to those of us who deny him, who betray him, who don't understand him yet, but it's to imitate him. Jean Vanier to finish. 
he reveals to each one his love, which is both comforting and challenging. He sees in each one a presence of his Father whom he loves and serves. The love of Jesus reveals that we are important, that we are a presence of God and are called to stand up and do the work of God, to love others as God loves them, to serve others and to wash their feet. You are the sons and the daughters of the King of the world. You are heirs to his eternal kingdom. You are loved so much by God that he calls you his child. You are accepted so much by Jesus that he views you as a brother or a sister. You are the friends and the family of the king of the world. Now what will you do?